A sage once observed that there is nothing so near to a God on earth as a general leading his troops on the field of battle. There are many sorts of heroes in this world, soldiers are some of them, but in our culture professional athletes and movie stars and entertainers are afforded hero status by the culture. But in the annals of human history, nothing compares to the veneration afforded to military heroes. This is less the case in nations like ours that are not militaristic. We, of course, like all nations, have a history in this area, but it's, it's not so much a part of our focus. But particularly in ancient times, among people that were always at war, no hero compares in status with the warrior. In a day when military technologies did not permit soldiers to fight remotely in any way, reputations were made and legends were born in hand-to-hand combat. In such times, a man with a superior weapon and the skill to use it could kill hundreds of soldiers in a single battle, as could a man with superior courage. It's really difficult for us to grasp the heights of veneration afforded to warriors in the ancient settings. These were not heroes who played with balls. These were not heroes who finessed microphones or knew how to perform in front of cameras and crowds. These were warriors on whose strong shoulders the life and prosperity of their people depended, literally. And nowhere was this any more the case than during the monarchy period of ancient Israel, where the warriors fought not only for the people, but also fought for God. The soldiers of the covenant people were a sharpened sword in the hand of the Lord of hosts, as he's referred to often, Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies. They fought for God's glory in active conquest and passionate defense of the land that God had promised to Abraham. And perhaps none was more legendary than King David and the band of mighty warriors who served at his side. If we could just begin to tap the glory of these men. His soldiers defended the land with legendary skill, knowing their Defense of the king was a defense of God's rule of the nations. I invite you to 1 Samuel chapter 21 today as we encounter Israel's hall of heroes. 2 Samuel chapter 21. We read in the sacred text the names and courageous exploits of David's most loyal warriors. And here then we enter upon hallowed ground. It is hallowed for more than militaristic reasons, although it would be for that. If if we could go back in time and talk to some young boy in Israel, like a young King David shepherding the sheep, and ask him about the names of these people, he'd know all the statistics. He'd know everything about these warriors. Some of them, of course, coming up after him. But in Israel, wherever these warriors served, Everyone knew about them. There were grand reputations of courage and feats on the battlefield that evidenced the grace of God in the lives of the nation. So they were hallowed for militaristic reasons. 
But in the very way that this section of Scripture is arranged, we see here more than a list of great military leaders and their courageous feats on the battlefield. Anyone that is even remotely awake who is reading through 2 Samuel, and you come to the end here of this section, you find some things that are a little bit odd. Let me point out one. We have a list of warriors in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15. You see that there. There's a war between the Philistines and Israel, and as you work your way through, you see individuals who are named and their feats against the Philistines. But then notice chapter 23. As you come to chapter 23 and you look at verses 1 through 7, you find here the last words of David. This book emphasizing the life of King David and his feats and all the warriors that surround him. Now we have his last words. And then, in chapter 23 and verse 8, what do you find? Well, here's some more warriors. Here's some more mighty men. Now, well, there's a simple answer. They didn't have computers. You forget something with a computer, you can insert it. Well, they had scribes here writing about these mighty men, and they forgot some of them. And so you give David's last words, that's the end of the book, the great military general dies, and it's over. Oh, wait a minute, there's a few more stories here I forgot about. Is that the answer? There's others who would say, no, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that the book finished with David's last words, but somebody else came along and attached some things to it. There's kind of an appendices here of other mighty warriors and, and soldiers that served with David. All of those kinds of answers are people that are just asleep. And if we wake up and look carefully at the text of Scripture, I believe this arrangement itself is purposeful and it is sending a message. The reality is, as we look at 2 Samuel chapters 21 through 24, they are formed in what is called a chiasm. Now, let me help with that. That's a literary term, but think of it as books on a shelf. And the books on the shelf, as you can see, that are arranged here on this graphic, there's, there's, there's arrangement there, right? There's a, nat a national catastrophe that is on the beginning and the end of this section of Scripture. In from each end, then secondly, are David's warriors. And in the middle, the two center books are words of David. As you look at that, just as it's graphically presented here, it's pretty clear that there's something going on more than then somebody just added an appendix at the end of this book. Maybe somewhat unexpectedly, the theme that ties chapters 21 through 24 together is the worship of Yahweh. Now think of that in the context of the emphasis upon the warriors of Israel. It is the worship of God that is really at the heart of all of this section. And we could draw that out, we will somewhat today, we could at greater length. But that I believe is the theme that binds it all together. The warriors of Israel were a different breed in the annals of history. They were people of God, but in no way inferior as warriors. They were warriors indeed who fought for God. 
and the listing of David's warriors and the recounting of their exploits in hand-to-hand combat plays an integral role in this central theme of worship in this section of 2 Samuel. So the, the books, the, the black books with the white lettering there is where we're going to focus today briefly. The war stories of battles against the Philistines we find in this first section of 2 Samuel 21, verses 15 and following. So if you find your way back there, if you're not there at this point, 21, beginning at verse 15, we pick up on these warriors, remembering that uh, their exploits are being told here as we remember Israel's history, as well as uh, this focus on worship. Note it, watch for it. Battle 1 takes place in verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. The Philistines, we remember, were mortal enemies of Israel, living on the southwest edge of Israel's territory along the Mediterranean Sea. It's maybe a little hard to see on this map, but you can see there to the west of the Uh, red area. We'll talk about this in just a moment, but you see Jerusalem, David's capital city, and a short journey to the south and to the west puts you in Philistine territory, and there was ongoing battles between the Philistines and the Israelites. Marching with his troops to the west from the capital city, There's a number of passes through this area of valleys. It's a mixture of valleys and hills. A little picture here that gives you kind of the sense of the journey. Not difficult to pass through this particular section in Israel, but working his way between these these foothills, the the, um, soldiers passing back and forth, the Philistines sometimes coming uh, into Israel's territory, and sometimes the Israelites putting pressure on the Philistines. This was a back and forth that had taken place for a, for a long time, but of course now in some ways, in the best sense for Israel, uh, they are withstanding uh, the Philistines and fighting against them. But this is just an ongoing battle. And in the traverse of this area, as David's coming down from the heights of Jerusalem, through passing through this valley, one of these valleys, he becomes weary. That's an amazing statement. As you study ancient history, the king got tired. You don't find that in the accounts of ancient kings. Ancient kings are semi-divine. I mean, they'll never emphasize anything, but this person is a superhero. But the king of Israel gets weary. It's reality. It's truth in reporting. He gets weary. This great king described honestly, verse 16 in his weariness, as we think of the king being tired, Ishbibanab, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David, set his eyes on him. This was going to be David's last day, and this man is ready to bring him down. Encountered by this great warrior whose spearhead alone was three times the weight of the typical sword in that day. The swords typically weighing two and a half pounds. This was a seven and a half pound spearhead. This was a large man and he was dangerous. He has a superior weapon, a new sword. Ishbi Benab is armed and dangerous, intent on taking David's life. In verse 17, we read that. 
Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid, to David's aid, and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Abishai, Joab's brother, is, is, uh, comes to David's defense. And this rescue of David, coupled with the protest of David's men that he's not to go into battle any longer, evidences a deep reverence and a protective zeal for the king of Israel. These are noble warriors coming alongside to help their king and to support him. They recognize that David is God's king, that this is God's light to the nations in a unique way, and they act to save him. The second battle is described in verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai the Hushethite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Sebekai, according to 1 Chronicles, was commander of one of the twelve army divisions of Israel, and he distinguishes himself here by striking down uh, this Philistine. Again, you, you see the, the boys of Israel talking about these great feats and rejoicing at this warrior's victory, and the girls doing the same thing. And so are the men and the women and everybody as these battles are told and retold and retold and legends grow. The third battle, verse 19, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob and Elhanan, then a son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. The Hebrew text here is honestly translated but we know, of course, that David, David killed Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. There's different ways of working through this. But 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5 says that Elhanan killed Lami, the brother of Goliath. And that may be uh, the case, uh, but whether it's a scribal error or uh, another warrior by the same name or something along those lines, it could be scribal error as 1 Chronicles 25 would indicate. But at any rate, this great giant of a man is uh, brought down. The shaft of his spear like a weaver's beam, that's, that's a big stick. And it did a lot of hurt. And uh, this, this man is brought down. Battle 4 is described in verse 20. There was again war at Gath. For there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Great heroes. 20, I don't know if 24... Digits helps you fight better, but it certainly scares the enemy. <laughs> uh, you, you hear about that. I, I suppose you can grip, grip things a little bit better, but there's some weird things going on here and some people that are really frightening, as Goliath was, we know, to the Israelites. But the taunting of Israel, isn't it interesting that the son of David's brother stands up and strikes down this warrior. There's great courage in this family. Great warriors who make reputations. And David, ranks, his ranks were filled with giant killers. As a young boy, he killed a giant, and now the ranks are being filled with giant killers. Yet fittingly, the poetic segment at the center of this section of 2 Samuel records David's song of praise to God. 
not his song of praise to the warriors. The result of conquest is not pride in Israel under David's rule. The result of conquest is worship. There's a sense of the presence of God, of the blessing of God, of this little nation standing up to its enemies and with courage and with dependence upon the Lord. Great military feats being written into its annals. This is not something this small nation could accomplish. This was something God was uniquely doing and they knew it. David knows it and he praises God. And the preponderance of material here in chapter 22, you notice, is about this word of praise to the Lord, not a worship of these warriors as such. So we enter into two poetic sections, and is not David a unique king? A man who can wield a sword with courage, and a man who can write poetry in praise to the Lord, and indeed in honor to others as was appropriate. We see his song of praise in verses one through the whole chapter 22. The sheer length of the song, coupled with the worshipful content, reveals that for David it is God who is at the center of these events. And then we find his last words in chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. You notice them there. Chapter 23, and verses 1 through 7, as David uh, praises the Lord, the rock of Israel, verse 3. The one on whom David rested for all of these feats of courage. But again, as we've noted here then, we come to another segment of warriors and their exploits. Beginning at verse 8, we find the exploits of the three. Now there's going to be a reference to the three and to the thirty. And we don't quite know how they relate to one another, but what we know is they're renowned. If you're on this list of the three, or you're on this list of the thirty, you are a great warrior in Israel and highly regarded. Verse 8 We read, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, Atakamanite. He was the chief of the three and wielded his spear against 800 men whom he killed at one time. Chief of the three. Again, there's no definitive information that allows us to know the relationship of the three, who they were particularly. But he kills 800 men with his spear at one time. That doesn't mean that he skewers 800 soldiers on one spear, okay? That's not the point. But the point at one time is in one battle. And we wonder about this. Is this really possible? But in hand-to-hand combat of that day, it was nearly impossible to surround a man without killing your own soldiers. And so it was not uncommon for a skilled warrior to be able to bring down a number of soldiers This is unprecedented, certainly. But it is saying, one by one, in hand-to-hand combat, he brought down 800 soldiers. We see this on fictional movie screens all the time, don't we? (laughs) The the, the hero uh, bringing down all kinds of people in hand-to-hand combat, because nobody's particularly paying attention to that one individual. And then, as the movies always have it, when uh, somebody important goes down, the whole battle stops, and we, <laughs> we focus in there. That's obviously just fiction. But this is not fiction. This is a man in the midst of a battle who with skill and uh, uh, ability and courage wins 800 battles in a row on that particular day. God gives him unique strength. 
And he is able to distinguish himself this way. Verse 9, next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. But he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. A man of tremendous courage is Eliezer. His hand, uh, is, he can't even open his hand. He's held the sword so long and with such power. Verses 11 and 12, we find a third individual then mentioned. And next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the men fled from the Philistines. So they're in this field with this, uh, this, um, the lentils standing in the field. It's a difficult place to fight. The Philistines flee, verse 12, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. This man's a non-Israelite, a Hararite, but he stands for Israel's God and fights for Israel's army. We then enter on, on the exploits of the thirty, or of the three of the thirty. Again, not knowing how all of this works out, but verse thirteen: the three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. We're fairly close to Jerusalem here. There is a stronghold, and uh, David is there at the cave of Adullam. The chronological setting is debated, but David is clearly cut off here from his capital city of Jerusalem, and very close to that is Bethlehem, David's hometown. Put yourself in the situation. He's, he's at war, and he's cut off uh, from, his, from his city and from his uh, family home. Because as we see there, a band of Philistines had camped in this valley and David was in the stronghold, verse 14, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So you're out in the field fighting knowing that the enemy occupies your hometown. And of course that means a lot more to them in that day than it would to us here in our day. His family's from here. This is his place and it's occupied by the enemy. Verse 15, and David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Expressing here his yearning to drink from the familiar well. And we, again, something we don't understand with the way water is supplied to us today. Sometimes we note some distinctive taste in certain places, but uh, we don't have this same sense. I understand there's people living in Switzerland who remain in one village for their entire lives, and they say that they can determine where a cow grazed by its, the distinctive taste of the cheese. That's living in one place for a while. But, but you, you recognize that distinct taste of that particular area. So in this time with wells and the way that water was supplied, if you taste water for your whole life, you, come, you become used to that water, that's your water. That's your well. And, and, and it's probably a, a word not of any command at all, but just of yearning. How I wish I could draw water from the well at Bethlehem and slake my thirst there. Verse 13. 
with these men, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, uh, 16, then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. That's not a, difficult to determine here. These men risk their lives for their king. They risk their lives against heart-stopping odds. They, they look fear in the face and they sneer. We'll break through the enemy lines. We'll go to this well and we'll draw water for our king. Have you ever had one of those dreams where somebody's after you and you're trying to get through a door and you can't get it to open? Can you imagine breaking through enemy lines and standing long enough to draw water out of a well? And not being fearful in that spot? They take the time to stop, to drop, to get up the water from the bottom of that well and take it back to their king. Why did they do that? What drove them to such heights of courage and self-sacrifice? I don't think it was foolish bravado, but rather loyalty to God's king. When you touch this, you touch something deep. God assembled around David warriors who were willing to risk their lives for their king. They drew well, they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem and carried and brought it to David. And notice David's response, verse 16, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Isn't that rather odd behavior? These men risked their lives to secure this water for David. And he takes it and he pours it out on the ground. He wastes it. Is that the thanks they get from their king? To take the water that they've secured and to pour it out on the ground, the key to this is that phrase, to the Lord. He poured the drink out to the Lord. David is the recipient here of an unprecedented and noble act of devotion and loyalty from these men. He can drink this water to quench his thirst. He can drink this water to revel in the satisfying reminder of Bethlehem. But he pours this water out in worship to God. In other words, rather than drinking in the devotion of these loyal men that caused them to risk their lives. He sacrifices that devotion to God in worship. When we talk about pouring something out to the Lord, we're talking about the terminology of a libation offering. This was something that was commonly done in the worship of Israel, to pour out a drink offering to the Lord. And he takes this in that sense and pours it out in worship of the Lord. There's something that's happening there that is really profound. In the hero orientation of our world, what do you do when people praise you? What do you do when people show great devotion to you? What do you do when your exploits and your importance causes people to come around you with skill 
and to pour out their abilities in devotion to you, what you do is you get proud. And you begin to say, as has happened so often with the heroes of our culture, I deserve this. At least somebody recognizes my importance. But in his humility before his God, David can't do it. It's the blood of these men that I would be drinking. I take this devotion. I take this act of unprecedented loyalty to me. And I pour it out in worship of God. And so we see really even in the accounting of the warriors of Israel that the theme of worship is central in this section. This is a very different army. The exploits of Abishai are then given to us in verse 18. He's the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, who was chief of the 30. He wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name besides the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. No worry about feelings here. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't in the three, but he was in the 30. Great man, great warrior. Benaiah, verse 20, the son of Jehoiada was a valiant man, a cabzeal, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two Ariels of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Legends. We find their exploits, and then at verse 22, their record. The things, these things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel the brother of Joab was one of the thirty. Elhanan the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod. Elikah of Herod. Helaz the Paltite. Ira the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. And on it goes. I'll spare you the pain of listening to me reading the, their names. But they're listed here. You work your way down through one name after another. But let's remember, in Israel, as these names are read, these are heroes. And there's a story that goes behind every name. And everybody could tell you the story of the exploits for God in this small nation as it fought to survive among the powers of the world. But where I will take you is the last verse, Uriah the Hittite, a listing of 37 warriors ending with Uriah the Hittite. And there's something interesting there as well. Uriah the Hittite didn't die last. It's not listed in alphabetical order, so he finds himself at the bottom for that reason. Why is he listed last? Uriah is not placed chronologically in the text. I think the reference here, going back to our bookshelf idea, this is a segue into the last segment of the narrative of David's sin 
in chapter 24. Not his sin with Bathsheba, but Uriah the Hittite is referenced here, I think, to give direction into now this last narrative of national catastrophe as David is disciplined by God for the census that he took. An act of pride. An act not of worship of God, but an act of self-dependence. Chapter 24 finishes out this book with this act of judgment for David's sin. And the reference to Uriah brings us back into that. The mention of Uriah serves as a sobering reminder of David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of this man. Uriah would forever mar the earthly record of David's career in the service of God and his people. As 1 Kings 15.5 puts it, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And you long to have a period there. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. And you want a period there. But there's this phrase, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is a subtle reminder here of the spiritual principle that we reap what we sow. And what did David reap? David is a a sinner. We know that we all are, but we also know that God is a sin-forgiving God. And he forgave David when he repented of murdering Uriah and sleeping with his wife. But the ordeal with Uriah led to bloodshed and sexual failure in David's home. And it forever marred the record. One of his warriors was Uriah. There were men of tremendous loyalty and devotion to David. And rightly and beautifully, he pours out that devotion in worship. But there was nonetheless in the heart of David himself a root of disloyalty. This man served David with his life. And David took his wife and took his life. It's an honest record. He got weary physically, this king of Israel. And he caved into the flesh. That's the record. 37 listed here is Uriah the Hittite. And yet, and yet, in the grace of God, the sowing and reaping principle is also a source of great blessing for David, isn't it? And the emphasis here of 2 Samuel does not fall upon Uriah and the horrors that come because of David's sin with Bathsheba, but where the record falls is really on David reaping something else that he has sown. Many years before, long before David ever dreamed of being king, he was a shepherd boy. And out in the pastures of the land, I can imagine David as a young boy with the sheep fighting imaginary Philistines and thinking someday... Someday, maybe God will make me a warrior in Israel. He didn't know what was ahead of him. In those formative years, David grew as a young man of unusual courage and skill. 
He grew as a young man of passion for God's glory and of deep faith in the Lord. He came to trust the power of God and know that even a lion, even a bear, cannot stand against the courage of one who trusts in the Lord with all of his heart. Those formative years led him finally in a movement of circumstances and of the Spirit of God for David to come upon a battle scene. And there in 1 Samuel 17, visiting his brothers as a little boy who had no business being around the soldiers of Israel, he hears Goliath defy the Lord. And on that memorable day, something happened in the soul of David. This same young man exercised this same robust faith in God and it mattered not if it was a bear or a lion or a giant. He took him on in the name of the Lord. And on that day, the shepherd boy became a giant killer. And now many years later, as the story of David's great success is told, we encounter a list of warriors such as the world has never known. One day at the Valley of Elah, a young man stood forward and trusted God against all odds. Armed with nothing but a sling and five stones, this shepherd boy stood up to a giant. And trusting God alone, that young boy won the day for God, for Israel. And slowly, along the winding path of providence, God brought into David's world warriors with a heart for God. Warriors willing to trust the Lord as the God of the battle. And the Lord surrounded him with a band of giant killers. Little, tiny Israel. Surrounded by the giants of Egypt and Edom and Assyria and Philistia, little Israel expanded her borders, struck fear in the hearts of her enemies, and drew tribute from her surrounding neighbors as God intended. And this text reminds us that God is not concerned with the size of the army. He's concerned with the faith of the army. When we look in the mirror as believers or as a church, we should not be discouraged if what we see is very small. In fact, we should expect it. And should then remember that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who through faith have conquered giants. We should remember that we serve the living God whose strength is made perfect in weakness, who specializes in assembling small people into armies of giant slayers. Ultimately, we know where this story points and of its greater purposes for us in the text of Scripture. Looking not simply at these four chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, but looking beyond to the entire book of the Bible we, knew that, we know that ultimately there was a boy born in Bethlehem. His sword was only words. And his military strategy was only love and grace. And around him was assembled not a great band of three or thirty or thirty-seven or thousands of the hosts of Israel, but twelve simple 
disciples. And that man, that greater son of David, that Messiah, took on the giant of death. Not with a sword, but with words. And not with a tainted record, but with perfection of grace in his life. And today, on this side of the cross, we serve then as warriors in the army of David's greater son. The son who conquered the giant of death and who inspires faith in his followers to assault the powers of darkness with courage. Not because of who we are, but because of his cause and because of who he is. David's warriors surrounded a man who was sinful, knowing that he was God's chosen instrument for Israel at that time. They gave devotion and loyalty to their king. We are no less, and in fact, in many ways, far more significantly, the warriors of the son of David. We are called upon to relate to him in devotion and, to, and with courage. To move into this world not fearful of what this world will do to us and how it opposes us and the difficulties that we may encounter. Not moving into this world demanding success. Demanding that everything will go our way and that there will be no failures, no trials, and no 24-digit soldiers. But in the grace of God, we come with loyalty to our King. And in our smallness and in our weakness, we give ourselves as His loyal soldiers to carry on the battle against the darkness that will not end until our Savior comes again or calls us home. And in this battle, as we serve this Savior, as we serve our King as His loyal soldiers of devotion and courage, in this battle, sometimes we reap what we sow in grace. And I don't know where that grace has taken you. Maybe it seems absent in your life, but maybe that grace has surrounded you with a loving husband or wife, children, ministry partners, a church that proves loyal and devout and faithful to the Lord. Whatever it is, sometimes in the mercy of God we reap His grace. And He gives us goodness. I think we take home from this the call to be loyal and devout to our King. The great King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we can take with us as well this call that when His grace pours out blessing upon our lives and there, are, there is the loyalty of others that we experience in this world and their devotion to us in our endeavors for Christ, that we take that devotion And that we pour it out in worship of God. That we not grow proud. That we not build ourselves up as a church, as individuals, as family members. But that we pour out all that God gives us by way of His blessing in reaping the goodness of His grace. That we pour it out to Him in humble worship. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider that application in each of our lives. Father, we thank you for this account, and it has so many different aspects to it that could be drawn out. We praise you for the warriors of Israel. We thank you for your providential working at a unique time in history in that way. But we thank you for the pointers ahead to the work of our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has conquered death and reigns today and is coming again with the angels of heaven. And while so many would say that that account and that hope is just foolishness and myth, we know what Christ has done once. We know that He said He would die and rise again, and He did. Against anyone's understanding or expectation. And so when our Savior says, fight on until I come back, we know He'll come back. We place our confidence and our hope in the return of our King. Lord, in the meantime, we come before you as your people and we plead that you would enable us to be faithful and loyal and courageous in the work of God, that you would chase away from us self-centeredness and orientation to our own lives and its prosperity as we would like to dictate terms. And I pray that you would turn us into, though a small church, a band of warriors that would contend for the gospel and for truth. With grace, with courage, may we, like our Savior, live out a life that speaks the truth in love. I pray that you would move within us as a congregation to point us that way. And I pray, Father, that along the way, wherever we are commended, wherever we are supported, wherever there is devotion of others to us in our lives, whoever we are in that regard, I pray that we'd pour it out in devotion to You. That You would chase pride from us and that we would admit, as with David, we are people who get weary. And as with David, we are people who cave in to the lusts of the flesh. But Father, our hope is in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Crucified to pay the penalty of our sin and risen with victory and power that we may serve Him in this world and not ourselves. So with joy we pause here in wonder and in gladness at what You have done in the ages of salvation that have gone before and what You will do by Your promise in the age of salvation to come. But here now in this place, we plead with you to make us witnesses of the gospel truth, to make us warriors for truth, and to turn us into people whose lives in every aspect are oriented to worship, to exalt and honor your great name. And again, for any who know not Christ as Savior, we plead in their behalf that you would draw them to yourself in salvation even this day. It's in the name of our Savior that we lay out this request and ask that you would answer for the glory of His name. Amen.